Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am grateful, humbled, and honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Yehuda Halper. He is a member of the Department of Jewish Philosophy at Bar Ilan University. He holds the Schneeweiss Chair in Jewish Philosophy and Ethics at Bar-Ilan University, and is a principal investigator for the Israel Science Foundation's research grant number 622-22 on Samuel Ibn Tibon's explanation of foreign terms and the foundations of philosophy in Hebrew. Today, we will be in dialogue regarding his newly published book, Jewish Socratic Questions in an Age Without Plato, Permitting and Forbidding Open Inquiry in 12th to 15th Century Europe and North Africa, published in Leiden, Netherlands by Brill Publishers, 2021. Today, I'm thrilled to engage in a dialogue with him regarding his newly published book, Jewish Socratic Questions in an Age Without Plato, Permitting and Forbidding open inquiry in 12th to 15th century Europe and North Africa, published in Leiden by Brill Publishers, 2021. Yehuda, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. Uh, The honor is mine. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? (laughs) Well, um, I grew up in Athens, Georgia, which is a small town uh, in Georgia uh, with a very small Jewish community. Um, and I was introduced to Plato and to Greek uh, from somewhat something of quite a young age. Actually, I started studying Greek at the age of about 12. Uh, and, I, and I really got into that. And I went to the University of Chicago and studied more and more Greek uh, and was very interested in, in Plato, both from uh Linguistic perspective is very difficult. Uh, this combination of di- uh, of, di- of dialogue, uh, sort of di- the way people talk, people speak, writing the way you speak, and also intense philosophical discussion, uh, and also from the and the philosophical issues were also very uh, very interesting to me. Particularly motivations of different speakers and how you balance that 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 those kind of ideas. And I really wanted to be a Plato scholar, um, but I decided. After when I finished Chicago, which was about 2004, uh, I decided what I wanted to get in touch with my my Jewish roots as practicing religious Jew, uh, and I wanted to sort of understand how Plato and Aristotle uh, were connected to that. And uh, I came to Israel, uh, and I started to to look into that uh, at Hebrew University, um, and I and I never stopped. Actually, that's sort of what I did, uh, and I worked a lot on on Aristotle in particular. The roots are very clear, uh, but my my greatest love in a way was Plato. Uh, and I wanted to know how Plato was really influential on, on Jewish thought. And when I discovered, and which 
ended up becoming the basis of this book is that for most of the Middle Ages, the part that we think of as being uh, so influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought, uh, Plato was was not read. Uh, they didn't have access to Plato's works, uh, not directly. They had very little access and mostly rumors about Plato. Nevertheless, there were some issues, uh, Platonic issues uh, that showed up. And that's what exploring those issues is what, what came up, what, what resulted in his book. Uh, 10 years of sort of intense exploration of this uh, came out with this book about what kind of Socratic questions they came up with uh, without without actually access to Plato himself. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Um, well, one of the things that's uh, interesting to me about this book and what I what it's really is just one particular problem that is is most interesting throughout this book, and that is the problem of um, Plato's apology uh, and the sort of divine command that Socrates feels that or the Socrates' apology written by Plato that Socrates feels that has this divine command to explore all things and especially the divine things and to question the divine. Uh, but the question of the divine is to ask about whether there is a divine command or whether there is a, there is a divine. Uh, and that kind of at questioning, uh, asking questions like that is actually goes against the divine. Uh, so there's a kind of heresy involved in it, uh, which he's called out on and actually put to death, uh, Socrates. So it's, uh, it's a very difficult position to be in. Um, and it's something that medieval Jews, as, as I studied and explored the research of this book, I discovered that medieval Jews have this, some of them, many of them, the ones who took philosophy seriously, saw the same problem, asking questions about God is also to question, well, things that you're supposed to take as assumptions, that God exists, that God gives you commandments. Uh, and to do that kind of questioning is, in a sense, also heretical. And they, they saw this as a problem. Um, this is a problem that actually has not gone away. Uh, if anything, um, it's stronger now than ever. Uh, and that's really what I want to explore in this, in this book. So how do people in the past deal with this issue? Uh, and And... I don't really have a solution to the problem, but it's a problem that we live with. Like so many of the most interesting problems in philosophy, we continue to live with them. Well, can we ask questions about the meaning of divine commands, the meaning of the divine? Um, and if you ask such a question, is that is that have you already undermined, uh, just by asking that question, have you already undermined the foundation, its own foundation? What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? What message do you convey to your readers? So the story that the book tells is a story of first, first of all, I start with those people who had uh, let access to legends of Socrates and, and sometimes even small quotations from Plato, uh, such as Judah Halevi uh, in the 12th century, who, who quotes Plato uh, a couple times uh, in, in his Kuzari. Uh, and and these are people who are also quoting legendary material that's sort of mixed up with um, probably Persian legends, uh, ancient also the Arabic legends uh, that they there's a, there's a vast number of these nomologies uh, that have been sort of combined together and they you find Socrates in them and it's not clear if Socrates refers to our Socrates or a different Socrates. Uh, and that's one way that people sort of have this Socrates. Most of the time, the Socrates of this version, except for Halevi. So in most cases, when you talk about these, th 
this vision of Socrates. There's people like Ibn Gabirol, uh, Moses Ibn Ezra, uh, even Shemto Falakera. They see Socrates as a kind of monotheist uh, who is very doesn't question the divine actually, but he's he's really radically monotheist, and he goes against um, he goes against the contemporary idolatrous culture, and they end up putting him to death for that. Um, and, and he's and he's also very quite ascetic. Uh, this is the same. This is the Socrates that seems to be all even in the, even in Nachmanides uh, we find him there, uh, and this is quite opposed to to what I call the second Socrates, which is the Socrates. Who is questioning the divine, and that's the Socrates we find uh, in the Kuzari. That's the question Socrates that we find um, also in in these Averroes writings, uh, which are taken from based on Aristotle's Socrates, but they're mixed up with all sorts of different material, which is also another fascinating story. Uh, and then, um, and those those are the people who actually had some kind of source, some kind of Platonic source. Um, in part two of the book, the book treats people who dealt with the problem that I associated with Socrates earlier, uh, this sort of questioning the divine, a divine commandment to question the divine, how that shows up in, in thinkers like Moses Maimonides, Jacob Anatoly, uh, Levi Gersonides, uh, and Abraham Bibago, thinkers who treat these questions but didn't have any access to Plato uh, and actually don't refer to Socrates uh, directly either. Uh, but they have this; they still have the notion of this importance of this problem. And the story that the book tells is how of this encounter with this problem among these thinkers uh, and how they, they keep the problem alive actually. Um, and they, uh, they allow for a kind of philosophical exploration and in some cases a solution, but generally speaking, um, they, they, they acknowledge that this is a very difficult problem to, to, and you can't really, you can't really overcome it. And that, that's the story I, I want to tell. That's the story I want people to understand. What does your book teach us about skepticism? So skepticism is, I mean, there's many meanings of skepticism, first of all. Uh, and I and I don't really deal with ancient Greek skepticism. It's not skepticism in that sense. It's skepticism in the sense of not knowing something, skepticism, doubt, uh, things that you don't know. Um, and what do you do in the face of not knowing something? Uh, and that that's the central part claim here of the book. Uh you know, is the question is, is, well, if you have a divine command to inquire into the divine, to know something about God or to believe something about God, which in order to believe something fully, you have to know it also. That's a kind of Maimonidean uh, paradox you have. So once you start looking into it and you start thinking about it, if you really think about it uh, and you really open it up, right, it, the, the, it's paradoxical. And uh, it's a paradoxical commandment. And, and it leads to a kind of skepticism in that sense. Uh, and how do you live in the face of that? Uh, that's the question. Uh, what status does your religious life have? What status does your intellectual life have uh, in the face of that kind of um, things that you can't, questions you can't answer? How does your book challenge previously held assumptions about Jewish Neoplatonism in the Middle Ages? How could Jewish Neoplatonism be reconceptualized in light of your book's insights, so Jewish Neoplatonism is a very—it's a—it's an interesting question. It's one that's been uh, studied uh, in in vastly different contexts, and is is it's uh, particularly with in relation to the Kabbalah. Uh, there are two uh, sort of main characteristics of Jewish Neoplatonism. 
Um, one is the emanation scheme that you are maybe familiar with from Kabbalistic works. And that's where you have these spherot, you know, you have the different like aspects of God and they, they sort of, they, they, they have um, emanate from one to the other. So you can, you know, go from Vura to Yesod or whatever. There's, there's enum, there's innumerable ways of dealing with that. Those issues there, even the letters can be a kind of emanation. Uh, that's one form of Neoplatonism. The other characteristic of Neoplatonism is the notion that by looking inward, knowing yourself, you can also know God. Um, because everything, all knowledge is one. So if you know something, and the thing that you most are able to know is the, is the knower itself, which is to say your own knowledge. So you can then come to know God somehow. Those two aspects of Neoplatonism um, are, are in a way what we traditionally think of as medieval neoplatonism um, but what's important to remember about neoplatonism what my book comes in to talk about is actually and th th these these exist uh but they don't come from plato and they don't come from plato directly uh these are they're questions in a way that plato deals with in his books uh they're particularly from plotinus uh who interprets plato uh, hundreds of years after Plato, uh, but we're already when you get to the Jewish Neoplatonism of of you know the 12th century, the 13th century, the 14th, 15th century, uh, what you're really seeing is something that developed in in a totally different way, and it and it's it really should be understood that it's not Platonism in that sense, and it's not Socraticism either. Uh, this is a Platonism that is is I mean it's called Neoplatonism uh, because of we connect it to these ideas, but there's no connection to Plato and there's no connection to, to Socrates and there's no connection to the Jewish works that think about Socrates. Uh, so this book kind of presents a group of thinkers who really stand in contrast to Neoplatonism uh, as it's understood. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's important for the history of philosophy to understand how many different ways there are of doing uh, philosophy and doing thinking um, and even though many of them, Plato, even Plato's own works and his own ideas uh, came to different thinkers in, in really vastly different ways. What is meant by acrasia? Can you explain this concept and its relevance to your study? Yeah, so acrasia is the notion of, of the lack of, of self-control. Um, and this notion is comes into play with really was Aristotle's an Aristotelian critique of Socrates. Um, and according to, I mean, of all of the things, it's you know, sometimes it's very hard. There's so many dialogues, there's 36 dialogues of Plato, uh, and Socrates appears in most of them, and he does different things, and there's different eras, and people like to break up early Socrates, early Plato, late Plato, Socrates doing different things uh, at different times. But he seems to generally have the idea uh, that people have self-control. Uh, and what he means by that is that if you know that something is the right thing to do, then you'll do it. Um, that, that's, his, that's his idea. So really, what you need to do if you want to like if you're doing the wrong thing, let's say you're a tyrant or you're doing some awful things and you want to um, uh, start acting properly, what you really need to do is to know what's the right thing to do. Uh, and some, so you talk to a philosopher, and a philosopher can then solve all the, all of these problems. Uh, and one of the things Aristotle came and said, "No, not really. I mean, people develop uh, things that sometimes they develop habits. 
Um, I mean, we think of it now, the biggest, easiest way that we can think about it is with smoking, right? People have a habit, they're habitually smokers and it doesn't matter if they know it's wrong. Um, I say this as a former smoker, but it, it's, it's uh, myself. If you can know that it's wrong to smoke, uh, that it's going to hurt you or result in some kind of th something bad, but it's very, very hard to stop it. So knowledge is not actually enough in that case. And you need something else uh, to do. But on the other hand, Aristotle also acknowledges that actually knowledge of what's right and wrong plays a large part because quitting smoking is going to take an enormous effort. And I'm not going to want to do that unless I really uh, think a lot about it. So what happens, um, there's a, this, this, this question of akrasia is a question of self-control and what you can do if you don't have self-control. Uh, and and a lot of the thinkers in this book, most of them to a large extent, um, they see the law as kind of establishing habits, the law meaning Jewish law, halacha, the Torah, that are supposed to kind of help people with self-control, especially those parts of self-control that aren't done with knowledge. Uh, and a lot of the book is also a story about how, um, well, questioning the very source of that, like knowledge of God, knowledge of the law itself. What happens when you do that? And what happens to your self-control? How do you maintain uh, your own self-control? How do you maintain good habits? How do you maintain good being a good, why, why would you remain a good person uh, if you no longer believe in God? So there's, there's a kind of dialogue uh, between uh, the questioner or the philosopher, the aspiring philosopher, uh, and and his own self-control and the, and, the, and, the, and the way in which he uses that to control his actions. Which dialogues, if any, by Plato would be most complementary to medieval rabbinic Jewish thought and theology? Are any, quote unquote, closer to rabbinic literature than others? Why or why not? Well, I've already mentioned the apology. Um, and and um, there's a number of others that come up through the course of the book, particularly the apology is the most present in, especially in part one of the book, because that's the one that seems to have been the most quotes. Uh, but there's a number of others that show up as well. What's important to remember about the Plato's dialogue, they're not, they're not complementary in the sense that um, Plato, we don't always know, Plato raises questions, he raises issues. Uh, the rabbis typically, especially in the Middle Ages, are they are more likely to try to give you answers. Uh, the, the, not always. And the ones I have, especially the ones I'm talking about here, especially are the answers are not always so direct. Um, but I see Plato's dialogues like the laws is, I think, is quite relevant to um, to Maimonides, this question of Maimonides' Mishneh Torah and the Guide of the Perplexed, the relationship between the Mishneh Torah as a law book and the Guide of the Perplexed as a philosophy book. I compare it to the laws in chapter four. Um, in uh, chapter uh, six, I deal with the uh, uh, symposium and eros, uh, again, philosophy as a kind of eros, as a kind of desire, uh, and how that sort of manifests in Dersonides as commentary on Song of Songs, uh, and how this desire for God and desire for knowledge, and actually he sees it as a desire for scientific knowledge, uh, and how that uh, plays a part in uh in in this in 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 his understanding of the song of songs uh which actually was extremely influential later on um 
And uh, I also talk a little bit, I compare this, this Abraham Vibago's books um, to, to uh, Plato's sophist, especially the notion of hunting uh, that we find in the sophist. The sophist as a kind of hunter, how to find philosophical truth as this, as this hunting. Uh, so that those are, I, I would, I, I recommend reading those together with those dialogues. Speaking of which, who is Avraham Bibago? What are the core teachings of his work, Derech Emuna? Can you describe its themes and worldview? So Avraham Bibago is a 15th century thinker who lived primarily in Saragossa, uh, possibly also Huesca. Um, he is he is really the last generation of Jewish people in in Spain. Uh, and what we find in Aragon at that time uh, is a group of Jewish thinkers who are ex have extraordinarily high levels of education. Um, and we find them interested in in philosophy, especially in, in philosophy that the scholastics are reading around the same area. So we have Avraham Bibbaga, we have another person named Eli Chabilio, uh, we have also Moshe Arondi, we have a number of others, Baruch Ibn Yaish. We have these people who are living in this area and they're translating and they're working on uh, a lot of texts that are Scotus texts, for example, or even Aristotle's metaphysics, which almost nobody works on Aristotle's metaphysics before Bibago. He's really the first one, sort of, he's the first one to write a really detailed commentary uh, on Aristotle's metaphysics in Hebrew, uh, which is quite late. Uh, and we find them working on this at that time, a sort of circle of, of people working on these texts uh, in, in tremendous, tremendous detail uh, until they're interrupted and they're, uh, it's, it's all sort of closed closed down uh, by the expulsion from Spain, um, which he didn't quite live. He died probably 1489. So he, he didn't quite make it to the end, but he pretty close. Um, in in Derech which is called the way of faith, he's particularly interested in legendary material. Uh, he's interested in giving, um, well, he's interested in two things. He's also interested in giving a sort of scientific account of what Judaism is. How do we describe Judaism as a scientifically acceptable religion? And this is clearly to uh, counter uh, Christian accounts of Christianity as a scientific religion that you find also in 15th century Spain. And he wants to say, no, the real religion that's scientific is, is Judaism. And we can, we can argue that. And what he also does is take legendary materials from the Talmud, uh, from the Torah, uh, as well from the Bible generally as well. Uh, and even, we also even found folk stories in this book. Uh, and he interprets them according to, to philosophy. Uh, and he gives sort of Aristotelian interpretations. And these interpretations are, are great fun. I find them tremendous fun, uh, but but they were criticized almost immediately uh, by Yaakov ibn Khabib. Um, and and it was, it was uh, uh, well, it was, you know, the next generation after Abraham Ibago. And uh, he, 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 he kind of his movement in a way lost. It was a way he presented a way of being Jewish, accepting Jewish stories, accepting Jewish ritual, accepting Jewish legendary material, and also being philosophical uh, and, he, and a, in a more comprehensive kind of system. Can you elaborate on the relationship between Bibago's Derech Emuna and Yaakov Ibn Habib's and Yaakov? So in a way, they're kind of opposite works. Uh, and I mean by that, the following. Both works are interested in Jewish legendary material, particularly of the Talmud. 
So Yaakov Ibn Khabib writes the Ein Yaakov, uh, which is, um, well, part of the work is just a, he just, he just took the Agadot, the legendary material of the Talmud, he put it together uh, in, a, in a readable form. But he also wrote a lengthy commentary on it. Um, and what Bibago also deals with a lot of the same material. And what Bibago does in the, with this material is he says, I want to explain how this material can be understood actually as being properly philosophical, how it really relates to a philosophical understanding of, of the world. Uh, and Yaakov ibn Khabib says, this is ridiculous. He says, Aram Bibago's stuff, his interpretations are so wild and so crazy that um, he didn't even believe them. <laughs> Uh, and what he, um, uh, there's no way he himself could have believed that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, and Marjorie Lemon has, has shown this very nicely in her book. What I'm going to do, says Ibn, uh, Yaakov Ibn Khabib, is that I'm going to, I'm going to take, uh, the stories, the Agadot, the legendary material of the Talmud, and I'm going to extract the Talmudic philosophy, what's really meant by that. And I'm going to understand what a story really means. And then we're going to try to follow that. Uh, and it, so in a way, it becomes a kind of dogma. He, he extracts a kind of dogma from the Talmud. Uh, and, and he makes his sort of philosophical understanding of the world correspond to that dogma. And, and Yaakov Ibn Khabib is, that's the approach that we find uh, today as well. It continues today uh, in, in rabbinic circles, uh, certainly around Israel, I imagine also in the United States, but I, I don't know. Uh, people who are reading the Talmud to find out like, you know, things about, say, I don't know, artificial insemination. Uh, they read Talmudic stories about, you know, what happens when, you know, somebody uh, uh, gets impregnated from sitting on a toilet seat in a Roman toilet. Um, that's an actual Talmudic story. Uh, and and what do we, does that tell, what can that tell us about the, you know, what is the meaning of motherhood or fatherhood in that case? <laughs> um, so, and and then Avram Bebago saying, no, we actually need to give the, think about what's actually the case first. Uh, and then interpret interpret the story to match our understanding of the world, uh, and he gives a he gives a another approach to it, which which didn't win out uh, or hasn't generally been understood to win out, but it could have won out, uh, and it, and it's a good way of of thinking about the world, and 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 it's one that that uh, uh, allows you to think philosophically and not use Talmudic stories to sort of govern your life, uh, which he he doesn't think you would want to do. How do Plato and medieval rabbinic authorities view love? What are the similarities and differences? Uh, so Plato uh, sees love. I mean, love plays an enormous part of in the Symposium and in the Phaedrus uh, and in a great deal of, of other um, dialogues. Love is is eros in Greek. Uh, it can also be philia, but but eros is particularly important. It's the idea of sort of loving something that is greater than oneself. The erotic love is the love of of something that's someone that's more beautiful. Um, it's unequal in that sense. It's an unequal love, which Aristotle criticizes in, in terms of human love. He doesn't think that's a good way of having a relationship. Uh, he thinks the best relationship is between equals. But Socrates says that really the greatest kind of love is a love for for someone who's much more beautiful and actually is really for the beauty beauty itself uh which is how uh people like Gersonides and and also Maimonides uh describe love of god love of god is a is a kind of love for something that is greater 
than oneself. Uh, and it's quite similar to Plato. So there's no, there's no technical, there's no relationship between them. They didn't read Plato, they didn't get it from Plato directly. But I have a very similar understanding of, of this kind of, of, of love, what it is to love something greater than oneself and to dedicate oneself to, to life, uh, uh, that, to that kind of love. How does your book advance our understanding of medieval Jewish history? Well, um, I like to, to, I mean, I like to think about Jewish history in terms of, of problems that, and questions that people are interested in, uh, all the time. Um, and I think that it's, it's what it, what we, what I hope to have accomplished in this book is to give people material to look at, to read, to think about, uh, and, and to, to ask questions that are, that are really beyond, um, beyond just one historical avenue, but at the same time, uh, to really understand them in, in, in the particular historical context in which they arise and to understand them by taking the thinkers very seriously, uh, for their own, in their own statements. Uh, so one example of this is Maimonides is a way of forbidding in the Mishnah Torah. He forbids thinking about, um, certain topics he like asking whether god exists for example forbidden right or uh other topics and then and i say that well he has a whole list of these topics and actually if you take these topics that you're not allowed to think about it's a forbidden uh by halacha by jewish law uh and and you you sort of organize them what you get is more or less a table of contents for the guide of the perplexed meaning that maimonides actually does think about these these questions uh and he does it uh, he does it very seriously. Uh, and, and what he, in a way, he's addressing somebody who's already gone on that path. And there are, uh, these people, uh, who exist in the 12th century, I guess, who are, who are part of that. And it's, it's very important to understand him in his 12th century context, but it's also, uh, a, a good way of thinking about in general, uh, these the sort of philosophical questions, uh, uh, behind them or that are accompany them. Uh, and I hope that, the book uh, provides sort of guidelines for both both approaches. What are the similarities and differences between the stylistics of dialogue in the Talmud and in Plato's dialogues? Um, Plato's dialogues are written dialogues; they're constructed, uh, and and this is something that's really important to understand. Uh, well, let me go back to Aristotle. Aristotle writes a book called the poetics and in the poetics he says something that we all take for granted and it seems very simple uh and it's that a a good poem or a good book or a good play should have a beginning a middle and an end uh, and that seems pretty reasonable and pretty trivial until you look at the talmud or the midrash uh, and then you see books that don't have a beginning a middle or an end and they they're moving in and out and there isn't really a structure uh in the same way uh, and um, one of the things that we see after Aristotle, an event long after Aristotle in the Middle Ages in Jewish thought, is that Jewish books have radically tra become transformed. They've become, especially philosophical books, have become transformed into books that have they have structure. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're not compiled by many people writing at different times. Uh, though you do have books like that as well. My colleague Daniel Abrams talks about those uh, in the Kabbalah. Uh, and and that kind of fluidity, but you have this kind of notion of an actual uh, of an actual book, and you have a dialogue that's that's constructed, 
It's constructed, it's meant to exist as a dialogue. And you're meant to understand these different characters and, and to and to think through think them through in every context. And there's a continuity uh, that exists between them that you can understand to be there, uh, which you really can't do in the Talmud. Uh, the characters in, in one place may or may not be uh, really the same everywhere uh, in the Talmud. Uh, and statements are attributed to various people in various places, sometimes the same statement. It's very difficult to, to put it together. Uh, there's an enormous sort of, way of, of uh Lenore's philological mess if you will to kind of understand that and, and we don't have that in 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 later works and it's important to understand to understand that and and to read them with a view to structure uh which you can do what is your book's contribution to jewish intellectual history um my well i think i've I, uh, my uh, my book's contribution to jewish intellectual history uh is is um, again, to 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 formulate a way of understand of, of talking about questions, certain types of of questions uh, that we don't to which we don't have answers, and to which the people who talk about them don't think that that we have answers, and to understand that actually, um, primarily when it comes to the main problem here, which is this this question of you know questioning the divine command itself. Um, people take different approaches to it. Uh, and that's a sign that there's no real settled way of doing things. Uh, and what's really important, I think, for understanding really the history of Jewish intellectual thought is to understand that there are some questions. There really is nothing. There's nothing settled about them. There never has been. And perhaps, I mean, hopefully there never will be uh, because they're too, they're really beyond our abilities to to come up with. And this is one such question, the kinds of things I talk about in this book uh, are are one such or one such thing uh, uh, that you really will always be struggling with. What was problematic about logic in the perspective of medieval Jewish authorities? Why was logic controversial? So the interesting thing about logic was became controversial um, probably after the 13th century uh, when you start to have this this kind of uh, uh, people who are attacking um, the study of science and study of philosophy uh, in in the early 14th century, in particular. But you have, um, and this is this is coming uh, in the wake of a of a vast interest in in logic uh, that we have, and actually is followed by a vast interest in logic. Um, my colleague Charles Mannequin wrote that the the bans on studying philosophy, Greek philosophy, uh, were were those were, were followed by an enormous increase in people who were studying them. So you have to wonder how many people are actually <laughs> following those bans. Um, um, and the logic, uh, what's particularly interesting about bans on logic is that we we find it that understood as a ban, first of all, by Jacob Anatoly, Jacob Anatoly, who is the first translator of a full program of logic uh, in, in, in the first half of the 13th century. Um, and he's before that, you see the expressions that he uses, like uh, prevent, keep your sons from, from studying logic. Uh, and we find those phrases, but we never find it really directed towards actually prohibiting logic. Uh, it's only Anatoly who says, oh, no, this is a real prohibition. Uh, and he again, he studies, he he presents it as a prohibition for prohibiting asking certain types of questions, which he then proceeds to ask. 
uh, and and it's his way of getting into the same problem. And then later it takes on a different. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's Anatoly's way of getting into the problem, which I I see as the central problem of, of the book, questioning the divine command. Uh, and and people don't always like this, of course. Uh, and there's a long history of people struggling to ban logic, to ban philosophical thought uh, in general, and in general to to ban uh, to ban science uh, in in Jewish thought. And this this uh, unfortunately continues uh, in some circles. Um, sometimes increasing circles even uh, to today. And that's, I think that's quite unfortunate. How did Jews discover Plato during the Renaissance? What happened? How did this come to be? Why do you note that they did all they could to hide Plato from view? Um, so when the Ottoman Empire fell in 1453, I mean, sorry, the, the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453 and the rise of the Ottomans came there. Uh, a large number of educated Greek-speaking uh, scholars uh, came to Italy. Um, and these scholars uh, in Italy, they taught Italian monks um, Greek. Uh, they were very interested in learning Greek. And they had these texts and they wanted to study classical texts, not just Aristotle, but also Greek. They, they didn't have, there wasn't very much Plato actually in, in Latin either, very little, uh, until about 1470, when one of these monks uh, named Marsilio Ficino uh, translated all of Plato, all of Plotinus, um, and a and vast number of hermetic texts into, into, uh, into Greek, into Latin, from Greek into Latin. Uh, and at that time, um, the stuff was available to anybody who, who could read them. And it was also around the same time that we find Jewish people who are starting to become integrated into uh, Italian universities, uh, which are speaking Latin at the time. So Yohanan Alemano is a good example. He's the first one probably to... Um, to get a, a doctorate, it seems from from and and be connected somehow to the University of Padua. Uh, we know that later on in the uh, 16th century, we have uh, people like Jacob Mantino who are really teaching at the University of Padua, uh, and they're teaching in Latin and they're studying Latin and and they're able to read uh, Plato in Latin, and that's the time when they're really able to start to understand. Uh, to really access Plato, and we find a growth of interest in Plato that's really directly related. To this, uh, when we have the more Jews are coming to study in in Italian universities uh, to learn Latin, uh, and they're actually able to to start to really become influenced by this, and that's that, and we see a massive change, uh, not just in Latin thought, which is what we call the Renaissance, but also in Jewish thought, uh, when they they're also uh, quite directly influenced by by Plato and Platonic thinking in in a new way. Can you tell us about Gersonides? What was his relationship with Plato? Can you contextualize him in the context of your research? So Gersonides is a, uh, he lives in the 14th century. Uh, he's writing, he's, he's writing very shortly after. Um, he's really working with Aristotelian texts. And the type of texts that he's working with are not actually Aristotle himself. They are uh, Averroes' commentaries. And these commentaries have been translated beginning with Yaakov Anatoly, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, from Arabic into Hebrew. Uh, and by the time of Gersonides, there's a whole body of scientific work. So you can study all the sciences uh, in these, in, with the ex exception of, uh, well, almost no exceptions at this point. Um, so 
you have it's in he's living uh in 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 southern france um and he's able to act and, and colonimus ben colonimus has just finished sort of the last translations of this except for the rhetoric and the poetics and what we find is is gershanard he's really he starts to write what we call super commentaries on these works um, and he's really interested in, 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 in interpreting them and he's writing them with his friends, some of whom we know their names. Uh, we, they can sort of write letters to each other. Uh, Yadaya Bedersi, who's known as Hapanini, but there's others. We don't, we don't know their names. We just have initials and there's a whole circle that we have where they're studying these texts and they're trying to understand them. Um, at the same time, uh, many of these people are somehow connected and we don't understand quite how to courtly intellectual life of Robert of Anjou uh, in, in, in Provence, which is also connected with Southern Italy. Uh, and these, these people are, are living uh, at this time uh, and, 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 and they're engaged, highly engaged with these, these thoughts. And they start to think about them in the manner that their Latin contemporaries are also thinking about these texts. Uh, and what we see is a, uh, a great interest and a uh, um, a development in 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 this in this in their engagement with Aristotle, uh, but somehow Gersonides is 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 doing so in a way that's at least what I argue in the book is is very similar to the way Plato engaged in questions, even though I don't don't know of any direct connection uh, between them. Uh, so I, it's a mystery how how that might happen. He could just be really really you know he's. A, highly original thinker, and he happens to engage in a very similar way, uh, which is what I assume. Um, but it is, it's a, it is, it is quite fascinating that, that that should happen. Why was Plato ignored by medieval Jewish thinkers while Aristotle was more widely embraced? Why does Aristotle, rather than Plato, or more than Plato, complement rabbinic Jewish thought? So that's um, a great question, and and Aristotle is, uh, I mean, the simple reason is that, well, the first reason that's the most simple is that Plato wasn't translated uh, into Hebrew uh, at the time. But the problem is, well, why wasn't he translated? Uh, and that's where things get a little more sticky and hard to understand. Some of Plato was translated into Arabic, and we do have some works. Now, there's a question of how much was actually accessible. Um, to to people in in Europe, and we, and we don't know the answer is we really don't know. It doesn't seem to have been very much. The translation movement, um, which really of 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 Arabic into Latin, which took place in Toledo in the twelfth century, um, around the time of Maimonides, uh, and then continued in Naples uh, at the court of Frederick II uh, with Jacob Anatoli, for example, um, focused primarily on Aristotle. Uh, along with a lot of other works uh, that aren't exactly Aristotle, but they, they were quite interested in Aristotelian works. And, and, and we find that these really were picked up by Christian thinkers. They were picked up by the universities who, who incorporated them in the University of Paris. And then again, that the Frederick Secundo's University in Naples, uh, those, they picked up these, these texts and they started incorporating them to their curricula, which we have uh, in the case of Paris. I mean, you can go see their curricula from the, you know, from the 13th century, uh, if you, if you're there. Um, and uh, we have them working through these texts and what we find um, 
most likely with the Jewish texts and the Hebrew texts is that they're actually they're working on the same texts as the Christians. Some what some of them are slightly different, but they really want to have this kind of the same knowledge, perhaps because they want to have some kind of recognition of having this knowledge so that they can function maybe as doctors, uh, maybe as pharmacists or or whatever kind of professional degree that they need to have. They need to have some kind of knowledge uh, of in there. Um, and because of that, uh, rabbis were interested in in sort of describing how Jewish thought could work with Aristotle. And because Plato wasn't available, they never did that. Uh, and it's only when when Plato shows up, uh, as I've said, after 1470, that they um, that they sort of have to deal with that and deal with a much more complicated relationship between between Plato and, and the rabbis. But that's the story for a different book. What does your book teach us about the history of halakha? Um, so the question about halakha and the history of halakha is is a question that is extremely difficult. Uh, and what the book teaches us is that there are questions that are kind of beyond halakha. Uh, and the questions of, sometimes some thinkers like to call them meta-halakha meta halakha questions, but they're the questions of, do we accept halakha or not? And that kind of question is a question that, that's an eternal question. It's well understood to have existed uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, and again, the question of the usefulness of halakha for things like self-control um, and for uh, directing yourself towards the good. How much can, can religious texts uh, also religious practice and also religious texts, religious ideas. How much can these things help you become a better person? How much can they help you adjust your habits uh, in this sort of Aristotelian notion of how do you combat um, you know, acrasia? How do you, how do you combat the lack of self-control? How do you gain things, make yourself con control yourself uh, using, um, using, using the Jewish law? Uh, and you know, you, for example, you control what you eat so that you're not completely, you know, you don't go completely crazy when you see, you know, some good food, uh, and or you you control yourself with various ideas uh, that are meant to sort of regulate your imagination uh, and to make you a better person. Uh, and that's uh, that's a large part about what these medieval thinkers thought um, Halakha was doing and was supposed to do. Uh, not as an imposition or a political imposition on a person uh, and not as a way of forcing people into uncomfortable situations, but as helping them, people regulate themselves to become better people. Why were Jewish and Islamic thinkers in conversation with one another while Jewish and Byzantine thinkers were not? What does this reveal about the nature and character of medieval Jewish philosophy? So the that's a great question, and the the uh, the answer is that we really the, the relationship between it, this really depends on what we know and what we talk about things that we know, and we have uh, so far a lot of scholarship and a lot of interest in the relationship between Islamic thinkers and Jewish thinkers, particularly in Spain uh, in the twelfth century uh, is a great time for this. We really see a lot of interactions. Um, and we really have done a lot of research. We have, there's much more left to do. Um, we're, we're really, you know, just, we have the tip of the iceberg for this, this kind of knowledge. Uh, but when it comes to Byzantium, uh, we have, we have nothing, uh, 
Um, and, and most likely there's a lot there. Uh, most likely there's a very rich, uh, interesting tradition. We just, we just need to uncover it. Um, and, and, um, and we have a little bit of after, um, after, in the late 15th century, early 16th century, we do have Jewish thinkers living in Byzantium. We have uh, some interactions that we find uh, that people do do study, and they're quite they are quite interesting. But we we don't we're missing enormous amounts of material, uh, and it's my hope that uh, that will be you know one of the things. And I would encourage uh, future scholars. That's a great area uh, to go into to work on that. How does your book contribute to contemporary debates about religion, science, and secular studies in Israel and in the West? Um, well, I hope that my book will contribute by uh, giving us an understanding that that we don't know everything, uh, and that's okay. Um, we don't. We're not actually able to reconcile everything. We don't have. All of the answers. Nobody does. Uh, uh, there's no no rabbi who's so great who has all the answers, and there's no professor who has all the answers. Uh, and that, um, like everything else in life, uh, things are pretty complicated, uh, and we, we we struggle with with these with these these concepts. Um, science is is particularly interesting because um, in order to do the way we've developed science, going all the way back really to the 12th century, the development of the universities through these independent institutions that are that treat science just science. And we all kind of recognize that we, we create universities uh, now everywhere on the same model, uh, more or less, with, with some, well, fairly important distinctions. But, but still, we have this notion that you have to study this independently. You have to study, you have to ask scientific questions as, as scientific questions. And you have to allow people to just, to, just that, to just do that and to regulate themselves and to, do, to, to follow that. Uh, and this goes back in, in Jewish context also, uh, all the way to Anatoly, the first one to say that, that this is something, this is a value that we do. Uh, we, we go to, you know, we go to a, we go to, when we read Aristotle, we think in an Aristotelian, Aristotelian manner. And, uh, sometimes we can reconcile that with our Jewish beliefs and sometimes we can't. Uh, and if we can't, um, that's sometimes okay. Like we can, we can. We don't have to. We don't have to have a unified worldview of everything. We can struggle with things. Uh, life is long. Uh, there's a lot to struggle with. And and uh, one of the nicest things in Anatoly, which I actually don't mention in the book, but I, in a later article, is that he describes Israel as getting its name from from Jacob, who becomes Israel while he's struggling with the angel, uh, and this the. He, the struggle is this this sarita, and this it, it's the struggle that makes him human. And and for Anatoly's interpretation, it's the struggle between things that we knowledge that we come up with through science, and things that we think we know through the Bible or through tradition, and how and we're constantly struggling with that. And that that's really what makes us Jewish people more than anything else is is the struggle itself, uh, is the difficulties. What are the complicated the the consequences and implications of your book for the ways that we understand quote unquote modern orthodoxy in the contemporary Jewish world. Um, so what I hope is to understand modern orthodoxy as as this kind of struggle of the same kind uh, that Anatoly describes. It's it's a, as a modern orthodoxy as as people who are. Uh, not afraid. So I, I don't like the why you focus on synthesis. Um, I like the focus on on the on the struggle, on the difficulty, on the notion that well, 
you know, we, we, modern orthodoxy is a contradiction in terms, in a way. Uh, it is difficult, and it is people who say, well, we have a very rich tradition, and we have uh, a long history, uh, and what we really want to do is is to reconcile them and to look for how to do that. But but we may not be able to do that, and and that and and that we're going to spend a lot of time. We're going to sort of dedicate ourselves to understanding ourselves, both as religious beings uh, and also as scientific beings. And and maybe there are other things that enter into that. So that's what I I hope for. Um, and it's a kind of humility uh, there. It's an intellectual humility, uh, and that. And and even when we we turn to um, that's one thing. The other thing I'll add to that is to say that um, I I really do think that it's very important, especially uh, for the future, to understand Jewish law as this kind of as in, in its relationship to habits, in relationship to uh, even habitual habituating belief, uh, habituating practice and belief. Um, is in a, in a person as also part of this personal struggle, um, as opposed to a political Judaism uh, or a blatantly political Judaism uh, that, of the kind that we're seeing now uh, rise in Israel, um, and uh, this is a personal religion. It's a religion of of sort of getting control over yourself. Um, um, uh, as Sidney Morgan Besser once said the main principle of of Jewish ethics is can implies don't, <laughs> you know, control yourself. Uh, that's what's really important. Uh, and that's a personal thing. You can't impose that from, from outside. Uh, that's people have to study, they have to think, uh, and there's knowledge is involved in that. And uh, uh, I hope to see a future where, where people will turn to the tradition to try to think about uh, how to keep, how to keep themselves under control and, and not as, not as a political way of controlling others or controlling society. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work? What have you been working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? So my current project right now is uh, to work on Samuel Ibn T. Bone's uh, explanation of foreign terms in the guide. Uh, it's it's a text that was designed to sort of explain the guide for for people in in Provence actually <laughs> at the very beginning of the 13th century who were not happy with his translation, uh, and they weren't happy because it was very difficult to read. Uh, and Samuel Ibn Tibon, when he translated the guide from Arabic into Hebrew, uh, realized that Hebrew really didn't have a language to make Aristotelian philosophy, uh, so he invented it. Uh, and then and then people didn't like that, so he had to explain this language. And to do that, he had to sort of introduce philosophy to them. So it's really the first book that really is an introduction to philosophy for an entirely Hebrew-speaking audience, no Arabic, just Hebrew. Um, and in that sense, it's it's really it's really fascinating. Uh, it's it's it, it shows up in many many copies. Uh, it also is a documentation of um, because it was written in many copies, is written by hand. Uh, and people are when they're writing by hand, and it's not really, it's not God, it's not Maimonides' guide. It's it's a different book. They're kind of not so afraid of changing the text. Um, so what they end up doing uh, is is changing these, changing the terms, changing the explanations, uh, and by reconstructing these changes, we can actually get a pretty good glimpse into how they understood what what philosophy actually is. 
uh, for really for hundreds of years and how they how that understanding changed over the course of hundreds of years. So I'm working on that. Uh, and I've developed a, a new technology that I and I made on a website for mahadurot.com to um, to uh, uh, do what I call modular digital critical editions, which is to display uh, critical apparatus that can change. So you can change the apparatus based on manuscript or version, uh, and it will you can display different versions of the same of the main text and have a critical philological tool of the critical apparatus. Uh, change uh, 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 accordingly. Uh, that's a complicated, really niche scholarly tool, uh, but um, I hope that it will catch catch on uh, in, among scholars of medieval texts and, and other texts uh, in the future. It sounds like an amazing project. Uh, it's so worthwhile. And I'm so proud Thank of you. you that you're uh, going so far with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dr. Yehuda Halper. He is a member of the Department of Jewish Philosophy at Bar Ilan University. He also holds the Schneeweiss Chair in Jewish Philosophy and Ethics at Bar Ilan University and is a principal investigator on the Israel Science Foundation's research grant number 62222 on Samuel Ibn Tibon's explanation of foreign terms and the foundations of philosophy in Hebrew. Today, we've been in dialogue regarding his newly published book, Jewish Socratic Questions in an Age Without Plato, permitting and forbidding open inquiry in 12th to 15th century Europe and North Africa, published in Leiden, Netherlands by Brill Publishers, 2021. Thank you.